Well, I am excited about uh, the next month. As we are thinking about the global mission of God together, um, I want to be, we're going to be studying uh, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, So you can go and be turning there with me. I think I mentioned this. Jonah, it's kind of hard to find if you don't know where uh, Jonah is. There's no shame in uh, using the index in your Bible. It's a minor prophet, which means it's kind of toward the end of your... um, uh, it's about three quarters or so of the way through your Bible. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Find the book Obadiah. You're getting close. Um, and uh, I'm going to actually read a large portion of the text today. There's a, there's a lot in this text. Uh, I just actually want to think about kind of one idea. Um, uh, you're going to see it's a pretty long sermon. Initially, as I was conceiving this sermon, this was just the first point of three. Um, and we're basically just going to have one point in the whole sermon today because it's just a big idea that I want us to think deeply about. Um, But uh, let me read the passage for us. Uh, I'm going to read all of Jonah 1 and 2. Okay, so we'll get a lot of the narrative here and then Jonah's response in chapter 2. So Jonah chapter 1, of course, we believe that the prophet Jonah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually giving these words. And so uh, we can hear them because of the power of God today with authority, the same kind of authorities if Jesus himself were teaching us. And so let's hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to their own God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And he lay down there and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought and we will not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has become upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has become, has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as it was pleasing to you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly 
And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head as the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. So this part of the story of Jonah, obviously, a uh, very famous Bible story. Many of you probably heard this uh, before. It's, it's a fantastic story. It's a fascinating story. It's an amazing story. I mean, how, how did all of this happen? How did Jonah survive being thrown into the sea? How did he survive uh, in the fish for three days? Uh, you know, some people think maybe Jonah actually didn't uh, survive, that, that this actually is a resurrection story of a, of a man being brought back to life, but but either way, it's it's an amazing and profoundly amazing story of the power of God. And over the next few weeks, as I mentioned, I want us to be thinking about this this account, this this little story, and and the following series of stories in this Old Testament prophecy, in this book of Jonah, and we're we're calling this um, we're calling this series "Pity Nineveh." And uh, again, this this passage teaches us a lot. Um, but the one thing that I want to think about today is how we encounter people in the world that are very different from us, that have a different context than we do, uh, that see the world in a different way than, than we do, that, that, that may even be opposed to the gospel that we believe in. Because really, when we talk about the mission of God, we talk about the Great Commission, we talk about taking the mission of God forward. That's what we're talking about. Engaging with, encountering people that don't have the same belief that we do, that, that don't worship the same God that we worship, that, that haven't experienced salvation in the way, if you call yourself a Christian, that, that we have. Now, this story begins in a very interesting way the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And it's interesting, Jonah, the description of him here, he's the son of Amittai. The word Amittai means the truth. He is the son of the truth teller. He is the truth teller. He's the son of the truth, the one who's called to, called to go out and to tell the truth. He's the great prophet of the people of Israel. But this time God says, I, I don't want you to prophesy here. I don't want you to prophesy among the people that, that know me, that love me, that look to me. I want you to go to Assyria. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, the, the people of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, 
was among the Assyrian people. And the, the Assyrians and the people of Israel were, were, were constant rivals. These were great enemies. So this wasn't just a call to, to different people, to people that worshiped a different God. This is a call to people that, that disliked the people of Israel, that disliked Jonah's people, and that Jonah's people very much disliked. They had a great disdain for the Assyrians. There was a constant warring between the two nations. The people of Assyria were constantly plaguing the people of Israel. They were, they were constantly coming into their areas and ravaging their people and, and mistreating their women and, and uh, terrorizing their men. In fact, the Bible says the, the, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. These were a bad bunch of folks. In fact, in 722, just a few decades after this, the Assyrians were the ones that actually took Israel into exile. If you remember that story, the Assyrians were actually the ones that, that came to take the people of Israel away from their land. And so what God is saying to Jonah is, I want you to go over there, not from a position of strength, I want you to go over there from a position of weakness. I want you to go over there alone, and I want you to start telling them the truth. I want you to start preaching them. I want you to start showing them their error. Their evil has come up before me, and I want you, truth teller, to go and show them the truth. And, and, the, and the way I want to think about this, this passage, this idea, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and gave him a mission. The way I want us to think about this is in light of the word of the Lord that's come to us, the mission of God that has come to actually each of you. You see, if you're in Christ, Jesus has given a command to us to, to, to go to Nineveh, if you will, to go and make disciples, to go to a world that understands the world, that sees the world in a very different way than we do, and to preach to them, to tell the truth to them, to show them who Jesus is, to show, them, um, to show them their own sin, to show them their need for a savior. And, and this can be an incredibly high calling. You know, a lot of times, in, if you've been in church for any time, in, in the missions week or the kind of the missions talks in your church, the, we, you, the, the, the world is kind of presented as, oh, there's, those, there's folks out there that, are, that, that need you to go, that are just waiting for you to come and hear the gospel. And in some cases, there are folks like that out there. I, I do want to encourage you with that. In some cases, uh, I, I really believe that God has so prepared people's hearts, they're actually just waiting on someone to come and, and minister the gospel to them. Actually, I had an experience like this one time. I think I've, I've shared this in here. It's been probably a couple of years, but I was in uh, Indonesia one time and I went out to this island called Salayar where literally the gospel had like never gone. There was no church there. There was really no known believers there. And there was a guy out there named Basri, and Basri had started having these visions. Um, Jesus, much like uh, one of the letters we just read, Jesus had started appearing to him in a dream at night. And, and the word that was coming to him was, good news is coming. Be on the lookout for good news. Well, just a couple months after that, a group of Indonesian pastors were on this island going around from house to house delivering Bibles. And one of them came to his house, they gave him a Bible, and he thought to himself, this must be the good news that these visions are telling me about. And so he begins to read the Bible. He reads the whole Bible in the course of a couple of months, cover to cover. But of course, he had no one to teach him the Bible. He's out there uh, by himself on this island. And so much like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I, I 
and a couple other guys showed up a couple months later, and this guy had all these questions, and we were able to explain to him the story of Scripture, really from the beginning of the biblical narrative all the way to the end. This guy who, I mean, think about all this. He'd had a vision. Somebody gave him a Bible randomly. He started reading the Bible, and then these, like, Americans go to this island that he'd probably never met an American, and here we are walking through Scripture with him, and he believed. He was literally just waiting for someone to come and explain the gospel to him. So that happens. I do want to encourage you with that, but that's not usually what happens. That that's not usually how the world receives this message. Usually it's, it's, it's more like this. It's more like the people of Nineveh that, that are actually averse to the message of Scripture. And, and they have good reason to be. They've grown up in a different context. They have always been a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever. To become a Christian, as we heard in these letters earlier, would be for them to be a complete outcast. It would be for them to be separated from their families, from their community. Or maybe they live in a secular place and Christianity just seems so cruel and old-fashioned and kind of ridiculous. That's most of the world. It's most of the world. And so I just wanted to feel that, that this call that Jesus has given us to go and make disciples of all nations, it, it, it's a great commission because it's a great commission. It is a great challenge. It is an incredible challenge. It's incredibly difficult. And oftentimes Christians have responded to the overwhelming challenge of disciple-making in one of two ways. The first is, is kind of what we see here. It's to hear the call, it's to hear the challenge, and to avoid it. You know, Jonah even runs away. He doesn't want to hear about it so much. He's trying to get away from the voice of God. He's trying to get outside the voice of God so that he'll quit being plagued by this. And some of you may be like this. You, you kind of don't like, you enjoy some parts of your Christianity, but the, this whole evangelism and missions, it's kind of like, eh, I don't really want to hear that part of it. I don't really know if I want to be so obtrusive to others to go and try to teach them about Jesus or engage with them. I'd, I'd rather, let's just us do our thing and uh, those other people, they can do their thing. I think this is kind of how a lot of people are. A lot of Christians respond. I just want to avoid the engagement. And I think this is natural. Some of y'all have heard me talk about uh, uh, Nichols, H.C. Uh, Nichols, and the in invention of the American suburbia. Um, and in the 50s and 60s, Nichols kind of created this utopian idea you can get outside of the city where there's people of different races and of different religion, of different worldview, and you can live in a homogeneous utopia where everybody looks like you and goes to church with you, and it's just a wonderful community, and everybody will think just like you think. And there was an appeal to that, right? There was an appeal to that because it's very hard to live among people that disagree with you about major things. It's very hard to live among people, for example, as a Christian, that think what you believe about the miracles of Christ, about the power of God's word, the people that think that's a ridiculous thing to believe in. It's very hard to live among people that maybe come from a different worldview 
and believe that, that those people are wrong and will one day be condemned by God. It's, it's hard to hold on to those things and live in a diverse place. And I'm just talking about living in safe American cities. It's hard to do that. What if you were called to a city where everyone, not, not everyone just disagrees with you, but everybody dislikes what you believe. Everyone wants to tear down what you believe. And this is the call, this is the call of Jonah. He is called to go into this very difficult context and say to this whole city <clears throat> from a position of great weakness that God is going to bring judgment upon them. That's a very vulnerable thing to say. And it's interesting about this. God doesn't say, when you go, I'm going to save them. If you'll go preach, they're going to be changed. If you'll go and preach, I'll be with you. No, he doesn't say that. He just says, go, tell them the truth. Why? Because I want you to. I wonder how many of us are, are really willing to obey God's command to us in the same kind of way. And so it's very easy when you start thinking about how hard it is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's very easy to say, you know what? Let's just focus on what the problems we have here. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've heard when we start talking about global evangelism. Why are we worried about everything going on over there? We've got enough to worry about right here. We've got enough problems to solve. We've got enough uh, people to, to teach and reach for the gospel. We're busy right here. And I'm sure Jonah thought, look, I've got this great ministry here in Israel, God. Last thing I need to do is go to Nineveh. Let them take care of themselves. You know, the first missionary of the modern era, the guy that they, they give credit to for starting the, the modern missions movement. It's a guy named William Carey. He was a minister in England. And he started thinking about the world. And he started thinking about the Great Commission. And he started realizing that there are literally millions and millions of people all over the world. This is, at this time, this is the late 18th century. There are millions of people all over the world that had no access to the gospel. And he started asking the questions. It started making people nervous. And so one day he, he wrote a book, and the book was actually called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens. Actually, the book's full title was An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of uh, future or further undertakings are considered. People weren't very good at titling books back in those days. But he wrote this book, and, and it, it, it actually was a very popular book, and, and people started to read it. It was fascinating for people. And, and he got in his mind, I'm, I'm going to go use means for the conversion of the heathen, for the conversion of people that don't know the Lord. I, I'm the means. I'm the one that God is calling to go. Who, who is the means? What is the means? It's, it's, it's that the, the, the disciples of Jesus would take the Great Commission seriously. It would go to the ends of the earth. And so he, he gives this big, he has this big meeting and he gives this big speech about how he's been called to go and how he's going to attempt these great things for God. And in the meeting, one of the pastors, one of the local pastors, a very respected man, a guy named John Ryland, said to William Carey, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. 
You know, it's easy to read or hear a story like that. It's easy to read the story of Jonah, kind of write these guys off and say, man, how disobedient, how could they have done that? But I just want to ask you to do today, are, are you avoiding the call of God on your life? Are, are you avoiding the word of God to go and make disciples on your life? You know, how many of us are really that engaged with God's call on our life to make disciples of all nations? You know, how many of us have spent any measure of time praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are right now being persecuted for their faith? How many of us have spent any time praying for the literally trillions of people that are without the gospel and have very little access to it? Beyond that, how many of us are actually doing anything about it? It can seem overwhelming, right? I get it. It can seem overwhelming. You start thinking about the Great Commission, what it really takes to advance the gospel in the whole world, it can seem overwhelming. And it's easy to just avoid it. It's easy to just say, let's focus on what we have here. But that's not what Jesus has called us to. And I want to say this, I'm sure glad that the Christians who have come before us didn't say, ah, it's too much, it's too hard. But they were faithful to do what they could with their lives to advance the command of Christ that he had given to them. Jesus has commanded us. He's commanded you and me to, to, to go, just like he commanded Jonah, and make disciples. What are we doing about that? So the first thing that Christians have done in the face of engaging with people that are very different than us, we've kind of avoided the problem. The second thing that Christians have done, and I want to spend a little time with this, is that we've colonized Christianity. We've seen that the world is different than us. People are, people, you know, believe different than we do. And so we say, let's just make them like us. Let's just kind of colonize them. And obviously Christians have done this, or people have done this in the name of Christianity throughout the years from a place of strength, right? And again, I don't have time to get into it today. This would probably be a good uh, question for the sermon talk back, but there are many people, there are nations of people, there are armies that have gone out in the name of Christianity to kind of force people into some sort of Christianity, into some sort of Christian behavior. Of course, you can't force Christianity on people. This isn't disciple making. This is modeling people's behavior in a particular way. And actually, this has led to a great distortion of the gospel. But people have also used, I would say, colonized people in a kind of coercive way. This still happens a lot today. A few weeks ago, I mentioned rice evangelism. And this is where, again, people from a position of strength from Western nations will go to poorer nations and say, hey, here's rice, here's tools, here's this, here's that. Now all you need to do is follow Jesus. This can kind of work its way out in a sort of prosperity preaching. Like, if you follow Jesus, then you'll be wealthy. Then your village will be blessed. Then you will be okay. And again, I just want to say that is not disciple making. You know, people say, what, what's, uh, what's your concern with prosperity preaching or this kind of preaching? The, the problem is, is it's not preaching. It's not disciple making. It's idolatry. 
It, it promises another God and says, use God to get what you really want. But again, that's coercive. It's colonizing, maybe colonizing Christian language, maybe colonizing some Christian behavior, but it's certainly not leading people into a love for God. Christians have often avoided the problem of the Great Commission. When we've found a position of strength, we've been prone to colonize people into this. But of course, neither of these advance the gospel. And neither of these really make disciples. So you might be asking yourself the question, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? How, how do we do this? What is the answer here? And again, I think that's why this story is so helpful for us. And I want you to hear this. That really, the only way that any of us are ever going to be a good missionary, that any of us are ever going to be effective in leading people to the Lord, the only way that happens in your life is when you first get thrown into a sea. And what I mean by that is before Jonah was thrown into the sea, he was a prophet, right? He was, he was this great prophet of Israel. He came from a great family of prophets. He had this great job. He was one of the good guys. He was a prophet. And the Assyrians, they were the bad guys. Uh, of course he was going to, of course God called him to, told him to call out God's judgment on the Assyrians because the Assyrians, they, well, they were a great problem. Of course, Jonah wanted to see God's judgment come down on the Assyrians. But then he got thrown into a sea. Then he was drowning in the sea. Then he was in a desperate situation, as it says, with the, with the, Weeds of the sea grabbing around him, him, him gasping for air in the sea, and he realized that sin wasn't just an Assyrian problem. It wasn't just a they problem. It was, it was his problem too. He realized that the very judgment of God that he wanted to come against the Assyrians was actually coming against him and that he deserved it. And all of his righteousness and all of his power and all of his prophecy couldn't save him. But he also realized, as we read in chapter 2 in that moment, something that I hope you have realized, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When he was drowning in the sea, fighting for every breath, realizing how fragile he was, in the most profound and amazing way, God saved him. Again, whether you believe he was alive in the fish for three days, whether you believe he, he died in the fish and then was raised back to life, either way, this is a story of miraculous proportions, and it is very clear in the story that God saved him and salvation came from the Lord. And see, I want you to hear this. When this happens to you, when you get thrown into the sea, when you realize your sin, the world is not so us and them. It's more just us. <laughs> it's more just we. It's more just we are in need of a savior. Sin's not just an Assyrian problem. Sin's not just a North Korean problem or an African problem or a Middle Eastern problem. No, sin is Sin is our problem. 
And salvation is not just something that they need. No, salvation is something that, that I need and that, that, that we need. When you get thrown into the sea, when you really get thrown into the sea, you really see that salvation comes from the Lord, you won't be able to avoid people. You won't be able to avoid people because you realize the kind of gift of salvation that God has given you. And you won't, you won't colonize people because you, you won't see them as other. No, you'll do the third thing, and that is you'll identify with people. As most of you know, I was in Myanmar a few weeks ago. And uh, when I was there, I got to hang out with this great couple, Kevin and Wendy Jordan. And I knew Kevin. I didn't know Kevin as well. I knew Wendy better, but I knew them when I was a student at Auburn. And, and Ke- but but I, I, I admired them both from afar. Kevin was just this great guy, super smart, godly, um, always in great shape. You know, I, I got, the most of the time when I saw him at Auburn, he was running, right? You know, one of those guys. Uh, and Kevin, like, literally kind of looks like Superman. I mean, when you, when you see him, you're like, that m- might be Clark Kent. I mean, just this great-looking, wonderful, smart guy. And then Wendy, Wendy was a cheerleader at Auburn, just beautiful, sweet, amazing, cool girl. And they fall in love and get married. And you're like, man, if any couple has the world by the tail, it's Kevin and Wendy Jordan. But you know what they did? They, uh, they went to Myanmar. And you know what they're doing now? They're living over there. And uh, it's, a, it's a country, it's a third world country. It's not a particularly safe country. Uh, it's a very poor country. Um, people over there obviously speak Burmese. A lot of their friends have kind of forgotten about them because they're, they're way over there, you know. And they're raising their kids over there and they're living life over there. And you know, you know who they hang out with? You know, you know who Kevin and Wendy hang out with? They hang out with Burmese people. <laughs> and you know who they worship with? They worship with Burmese people. And you know who they spend most of their day with and who their children play with? They, they, they play with Burmese people. And you know what Kevin and Wendy do? They actually even, like, when Kevin came and picked me up from the airport, he was even, like, dressed in, like, this, like, Burmese kind of outfit, you know. They even dress like the people around them. You see what's happened to Kevin and Wendy? As great as they are, they, they've realized, look, my only hope is this, that salvation comes from the Lord. They, at some point in their life, they came face to face with their own sin. They, they were thrown into the sea. And they realized, my only hope is Jesus. And, and so they were willing to, in light of that, go identify with people that really needed Jesus. And without them would have a lot, would have very little access to the gospel and even with them still have a little access to the gospel. But they said, you know, we're going to take our little lives in light of what Jesus has done for us and we're going to go identify with these people. They're not colonizing them, right? They're not there in a position of power. No, they're serving them. They're coming up underneath them. They, they've, they've become like them. It's kind of strange to hang out with them because, you know, I knew them when, like, she was just a little cheerleader at Auburn, and he was just this guy that ran around campus a lot. And I knew them then, and they were just, like, good kids from the South. And now here they're kind of Burmese. They're not, right? 
They're not, but they kind of are. They've identified with these people. They've identified with them for the sake that, that through them and through their witness, some of these people might come to know and love Jesus. And see, I want you to hear this. When you encounter people that are different than you, you encounter a word from the Lord like this, go and reach these people that are very different from you. You can do one of three things. You can avoid it. You can, you can just say, you know what? It's too much. It's too hard. I'm just going to kind of focus on this. You can try to colonize. You can say, well, I'll only do it if I can kind of be in a position of power and maybe I'll go over and help a little bit from position of strength. Or you can identify with people. And you know, the reason that Kevin and Wendy can identify with them, the reason that Christians have done this, the reason that this is real Christian mission is because this is exactly what Jesus does for us. Jesus didn't avoid us in our sin, though he should have. He he didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us drowning in the sea of sin, though he, he he really would have been just and whole to do that. He also didn't colonize us. When Jesus came, he didn't come as a king saying, do this way and be my way. No, no, he actually came in a weak kind of way. He came to identify with people like us. He came as a human being. And he identifies with us in every sort of human way. I mean, he really got hungry. He really knows what that's like. He really was sad. He really felt betrayed by his friends. He really felt the pain of loss. He really wept uh, when loved ones around him died. He, he, don't you see how he does, what Jesus does? He identifies with you. Jesus, the king of the universe, identifies with you and me in every way. He even identifies with us in temptation. And the Bible says we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand our temptations. No, he, he's been tempted in every way just as we have, yet without sin. The, the sin that you're fighting, Jesus knows that that is hard because he's, he's been tempted. He identifies with us even in our things like our baptism, right? You know, Jesus, of course, he didn't need to be baptized. Remember John the Baptist says, I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus says, no, it must be so. He was identifying with us in this. He identifies with us even to the point of this, even to the point of identifying with our sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he's so engaged with us that he took on our problem as his own. You see Kevin and Wendy Jordan over there in Burma, and you know what they're doing? They're, they're Americans. They, they don't have to endure the Burmese problems, Right? They could just stay over here in America where everything's clean. We have amazing health care and everything's nice. But they're over there enduring the problems of the Burmese with them. They're taking on their problems as their own. And that's, you see, it's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. He took on our greatest problem. He even took on our sin. He took it on as his own and went to the cross on our behalf and, and suffered the greatest cost, the, the cost of God's judgment against our sin. He, he, he suffered that in our place so that, that we in him and, and through identifying with him, we could know God. You see, when you face people that are very different from you, you can avoid them. You can, you can try to coerce them or control them to make them more like you, or you can identify with them and show mercy and compassion to them. And, and in and, and hopes that through that, 
God will be seen in your life. The way of Christ will be seen in your life. Now, the next three weeks, we're going to be in this story. We're going to be talking about these things. And, and I guess I would have a couple of hopes for you. Some of you, some of you over these next three weeks, there may be somebody that, that God has put in your way that you've been avoiding. They're a neighbor or somebody you work with. You have been avoiding. You know that God wants you to identify with him for the sake of the gospel, and you've been avoiding them. And some of you, maybe this is the time that God finally opens up your heart and you quit avoiding them. Some of you, maybe this is a time where you strategically engage with one of our partners, right? Where you say, you know, HTP, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine my brother killing me for my faith. And the fact that that's happening it makes me want to do everything I can to care for that brother of mine in Christ. Maybe some of you will engage with, for example, our, our partners in Paris, this incredibly secular country where, where the gospel light is dimming ever so fast. And you'll say, you know, I'm going to go there this summer and engage with them and help them and regularly pray for them. And some of you over these next three weeks, I really hope that this is true. Some of you, I hope that, that, that you're one of the ones that God says, hey, you know what? I, I, got, a, I got a calling for you. You know, there's, there's, there's folks in Atlanta. I'm going to be represented in Atlanta, but I need you. I need you to go here. I need you to go there. I need you to join over here. I need you to maybe take a step toward, toward giving your life to the Great, commi- to the great Commission. That, that one day souls that without your life would have no chance of knowing me will be around my throne forever and forever. And so I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful that, that this may be even just a revolutionary few weeks in the life of our church and that he would turn our hearts more deeply toward him, toward his glory, and toward this great mission that he's called us on. So let me pray for us. Father, I, I do pray now that um, as we meditate on these ideas, and really just on this one big idea, so much to meditate in this story. I pray, Father, we would be a people that, that believe, that, that believe even now that salvation comes from the Lord. That our only hope of salvation, the world's only hope of salvation is, is you, the Lord. But Father, just as Jonah was saved in a dramatic way, Lord, we've been saved in an even more dramatic way. He was saved by a fish. We have been saved by the very Son of God coming to identify with us. How impossible is that? But how true is that? And so, Father, I pray that we would, even in a whole new way right now, hold fast to this truth that salvation belongs to the Lord and and that we would be a people willing to identify with people that are far from you in order that through us, Lord, you may save some. You may bring souls to yourself that you may receive glory and worship. And so, Father, we, um, I'm hopeful, Lord, that you'll do this uh, even more so in my life and that um, you'll do this in the life of our church. And so, Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.